This is Trepwire Week in Review for week ending August 20th. I'm Martha Kocher with Trep, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS Commercial Real Estate and CLO Markets. I'm with Manis Clancy, Senior Managing Director, and Joe McBride, Head of Siri Finance. This week, minutes from the latest Fed meeting reignited, taper talk, and economic data release show that growth may be slowing. First time in continuing jobless claims improved to a new post-pandemic low, and retail earnings reports were robust, but other data was disappointing. Retail sales fell last month and consumer sentiment fell sharply in the first half of August. Man, it's a lot happened this week, a lot that points to a crisis of confidence. Concern is that there's another shoe to drop, but nothing tangible. I was driving with a good buddy of mine for an hour the other day, and, and he's not a Wall Street guy, but he is a well-educated person. And he was telling me, that all of this has to end badly, right? And I said, what do you mean by end badly? He said, well, this run up in, in housing prices and the run up in the equity markets and you know, super low interest rates for such a long period of time. And I hadn't really thought about it from that perspective, just even though we've talked about it on the podcast before, my first reaction was, what is the catalyst gonna be? And, and he started talking about things like, well, I heard the, the Fed is gonna stop you know, buying bonds and, and you see what's happening in Haiti and Afghanistan. And, and I said to him, you know, those things are crises of confidence and, and they could send the market sideways for a while or, or they could cause a retrenchment. But when you talk about real problems, bona fide problems that get into the economy that lead to the issues that result in massive losses for investors, there's always a catalyst and if you think about you know, the late 1980s, when we saw the commercial real estate crisis, it came from speculative lending and that speculative lending led to delinquencies and then losses and then bank defaults. When you look at the dot-com bust, what you saw was companies that had IPO'd running out of cash, not being able to sustain themselves any longer. And during the great financial crisis, what we saw was property owners, residential and commercial, not being able to pay their mortgages and that rolling up to losses at the banks, which caused bank failures. And all of that was supercharged by financial institutions taking positions in derivatives like CMBX and ABX. But every one of those things, it started with a loss, right? Somebody was losing money. So my reaction to the, this buddy of mine that I was driving with was, until there's a catalyst, in, until we see something that is bonafide where somebody is losing money, right? What we really are talking about is concerns about things like peak earnings or um, is there another shoe to drop in Afghanistan or something like that. That is not the type of thing that really spirals out of control. It could it'd send the market sideways, but it's not the end of the road. And, and so he asked me, you know, what could that next catalyst be? And I started running through in my mind what those things could be. And, and there's not a long list, right? Things that concerned us five or 10 years ago, like student loan debt has been nationalized, right? There isn't a subprime housing market in the private sector anymore, right? Residential housing is now really all Fannie and Freddie, where there used to be kind of this private label RMBS. And you talk about other things. And to me, 
there's not anything on the horizon right now. Banks are better capitalized. People are getting paid for taking derivative positions. The people taking B-piece positions are private equity and, and so forth. So when you look at it from that perspective, where does it come from? And, and the answer for me is, I don't know. So it's funny that you were talking to your buddy because I was catching up with our old friend, Rick Jones over at Deckert, asking him to fill out our CRE sentiment survey, which by the way, we'll be talking about the results of next week. If you have not filled it out, go to trep.com and fill it out because we want to hear from you, especially our loyal podcast listeners. You should put a little like, you know, Easter egg in one of the comments at the end. So we know you're a listener, something like crabgrass or green shoots or something like that. But anyway, I realized that I hadn't caught up on Rick's blog in a while. And he had one a couple of months back where that was about basically saying to all those distressed debt investors out there, did we totally miss the boat or did this thing just slink by us and we never even had a distressed debt opportunity? And he kind of went through a similar explanation of uh, catalysts in the past and the thing that's common across all of those scenarios that you mentioned, Manis, in, in history is over leverage or overcapitalize, right? And if you're not over leveraged, if you lose 20% of your value, right? If you have $100 in your, in your Merrill Lynch brokerage account and the value goes down to 50, it's not the end of the world. But if you have $100 and you've levered it up two times and the value goes down to 50, then you're dead. Those seem to be the, the common things going on back then. I mean, right now, the only places that I could see where there's, I mean, there's froth everywhere, but the major froth seems to be in that kind of VC funded, money losing startup world, the tech world where uh, companies are getting bought for 15 and 20 times revenue or more that don't, that have negative earnings and all that type of stuff. But again, like, a lot of that is getting soaked up by the largest technology companies out there who have mountains and mountains of cash to burn. So I think in a if we're talking about kind of equity markets, especially when Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Microsoft, right, those companies make up 50 or 60% of the value of a lot of the market, as long as they're able to have these ins insane margins you know, we're relatively safe. Now, I will say the the nationalization topic is, you know, one that could be fraught with, uh, you know, political dilemmas and debates. But, you know, my biggest concern is that we uh, disincentivize people to create new companies, to create new ideas, to innovate, and to, you know, to build and to work hard. I think that's just in the American ethos. So I don't think that ever goes away, but you know, you're seeing it now it's people are finding it very hard to fill jobs. They can't find anybody to work. You know, I mean, if we continue down that path for a long period of time, you could lose a little bit of that zhuzh that we've relied on for, you know, since the dawn of America, basically. Yes. You know, picking up on, on a couple of your points, when you look at the comparison of the dot-com bust to the great financial crisis, the dot-com bust, people running out of money, was very, very painful to retail investors, to mutual fund holders, to people that were in the tech space. But there wasn't leverage on leverage there, right? Even though the NASDAQ got absolutely pounded for a period of a year or two, that didn't ever 
provide any level of systemic risk. Whereas in 2008, these subprime losses, because there was so little equity involved, first at the borrower level, and then at the bondholder level, and then at the derivative level and so forth, and also at the bank level, right? They were all less well capitalized than they are today. All of that added up to something that was much more systemic. So I think you're right. I don't think that we're seeing leverage on top of leverage right now. I still think that we're seeing, at least in the commercial real estate side, relatively conservative and well-priced lending, right? We're not seeing that highly overfinanced A note, B note, MES loan, 2% equity uh, value. We have seen certainly a run-up in valuations, but we're not seeing that, that froth in terms of loose underwriting. So I don't think it comes from there. If, if I had two or three concerns that if there's going to be a catalyst, where does it come from? It would probably be the leverage loan market where there's been a lot of debt taken on over the last couple of years, or some kind of black swan event where the US just gets downgraded and that leads to unforeseen economic turmoil that we're just not prepared for. But at the moment, what we see to have is a crisis of confidence because of froth and global concerns and not something bigger. To steal a line from Rick's blog, and it's not exactly this line, but the catalyst will be obvious in hindsight. Right. We're not going to be able to point it out now, but when it does happen and we look back, we're going to say, holy crap, how did we not know that? Last thing I'll say on this and we can move on. And overall, no banks failed, right? Didn't see a wave of foreclosures, a wave of all these other kind of losses and stuff like that. So we can tell one story, which is the banks were in great shape coming into this. They had tons of capital. They did good underwriting. They weren't over leveraged and so on and so on. There's another side of the story, which is that banks made a lot of money on PPP, right? They got relief on doing CECL. They got, CECL got it moved back. International banks got relief on IFRS 9, which is a reserving standard, which they basically said, hey, look, if this is COVID impacted, like don't reserve against it, even though you think there might be a loss. 0% short-term interest rates, Fed bond buying, like the backstop was there and it was the biggest backstop of all time. So I just wonder, you know, if you could go back sliding doors and say, like, what if the Fed and the government had done nothing? What would the results have been, right? Were the banks well capitalized and ready for something like this without all of those backstops in place? Well, maybe that's what we'll learn from Rick and his kind of observation is that the stimulus does run out at some point. And, and if some of these crises of confidence end up eroding, some of the confidence we have in the White House or other things, and, and they can't push through the next stimulus that they want. Maybe we find out the hard way, what I said before that I couldn't identify, which is here's the other shoe to drop, right? Evictions lead to losses or lack of more stimulus leads to more unemployment and, and so forth. So um, we will find out and it'll be self-evident, as you said, at, at some point. I think it's crazy inflation, slowing growth, and the Fed has to raise rates. That's it. That's the only thing I can think of. It's the most obvious answer. But well, this week we had a slew of retailers report earnings. And while many of them beat expectations, it seemed that investors were looking for some clues of what's to come in the coming months. What's the breakdown of the results, Joe? Yeah. So 
we had a lot of the big names, Walmart, Target, Home Depot, Lowe's, and Macy's, and Kohl's. We have to mention Kohl's. Can't forget Kohl's. Kind of overall moral of the story is that things are still pretty good, right? Growth has slowed. A couple of the takeaways here, so I'll just go through one by one and give you a few takeaways. So both Walmart and Target beat earnings expectations pretty handily, and both were mentioning that in-store sales growth is still positive but has slowed. Online sales growth, especially for Target, uh, was still uh, increasing pretty nicely. Things like back to school and apparel uh, were positive in both areas. So that, you know, that's a good sign. Luggage, backpacks, that type of stuff. That's a good sign that people are kind of buying things to get back to real life. Uh, Walmart didn't have much of a, a response in terms of the stock price, but Target, Target had a, a pretty decent bump. On the other side of the world, we've got Lowe's and Home Depot. Both had similar kind of beats, uh, but Lowe's had a, a nice pop in terms of its equity prices, whereas uh, Home Depot kind of flagged a little bit. The big, the big story here was that the DIY stuff, you know, the, the people buying stuff to do projects in their home had really decreased uh, compared to last year. Obviously, everyone was stuck at home. So things like paint and uh, what is kitchen and bath and lumber were its two strongest departments, while paint, hardware, indoor and outdoor gardens were negative. So seems like the pros are still buying stuff, but the Joes are not, you know, doing gardening or pa painting their houses as much anymore. So uh, I, I'd say overall positive. One of the biggest surprises here was Macy's. So they blew away earnings estimates. And a couple of notes from them, the, the biggest one that I highlighted here was that as of this quarter, or Q2, based on a, a two-year window back to 2019, their e-commerce sales were up 45%. So since so in 2020, they were moving to e-commerce and then COVID hit and they had to go hardcore into internet sales and they're up 45% over two years, which is a pretty incredible growth number. That e-commerce accounted for 32% of its sales, which I think is absolutely flabbergasting coming from you know, a large anchor department store. I mean, they're not large and anchor anymore, but they were, right? So to see that kind of growth, I guess is good for Macy's. I don't know if it's I think it's probably decent for a retail. And then Kohl's, I don't have too much color on Kohl's other than that they beat forecasts but fell in trading. So, you know, people are buying stuff. They weren't buying stuff as much as they were last year, but they're still, the consumer is still relatively strong. The big picture of the six names that you mentioned, uh, all six beat on the bottom line in most cases, or maybe in every case, by a substantial amount. Not everybody was rewarded with a surge in their stock price. You know, Home Depot was down, as you said, Walmart was flat, but Macy's was up 20%. I mean, people were really impressed by their number. So for people that are not stock players, that are CMBS players that are looking at this, I think the takeaway is that across a, a very wide spectrum of types of retailers, we're seeing good numbers, right? Macy's is a department store. Walmart, kind of this, and Target, kind of the big overall um, departments or competitors, right? The, the one-stop shopping discount area, um, even Petco today, which we didn't mention before, their earnings were up, right? They're a big retailer uh, nationally. 
So department stores, pet stores, do-it-yourself stores, across the spectrum, really good numbers. And, and that should give at least some stiffening of the spine to people that were worried that uh, retail you know, was going to go through uh, more growing pains or something like that. We didn't see that in Q2, and, and, and that's terrific. A couple of last points on Macy's. They did restore their dividend, which was terrific. And in their comments by their CEO today, they did point this out. Suburban stores are outperforming city stores by a wide margin. They said suburban stores are back to their 2019 traffic levels, but the inner city stores are really, really lagging. So I thought that was an interesting point and that maybe informative to some degree for people that look at their portfolios and kind of compare uh, urban retail versus suburban retail. So speaking of suburbs and living in the suburbs, as someone who lives there, these places are packed, right? All the, all the stores, all the restaurants, they're all packed. I actually, I was going to BJ's. I mention it all the time because it's near where I live. And I was walking in by myself with a bunch of like water jugs that I was going to replace. And I saw a guy that I knew from high school. And we both kind of looked at each other and we were like, we don't want to admit that we're seeing each other here in this phase of our lives. Like, look at us. We are full-blown suburban adults, dad adults. And there's that element of like, oh man, like I don't even want to talk to this guy and, and admit that now I'm an old man, uh, but I am. So anyway, I, there's, there's a, when I go to the city, people are walking around with masks on, everyone's still a little bit distant or whatever you want to call it. In the suburbs, as far as I can see, we're back, right? It's time to go back. We were at the restaurant the other night, packed, right? It's just, it's time to get back to life. Joe, you're one Come of those guys folk. that it, it, it strikes me as your, your timing is always off, right? When you were 15 and you should have been seeing Dave Matthews, you were seeing One Direction. When you were 20, when you should have been at the bar, you were at Chuck I was e. 15. I think One Direction was like one. When you were 20, you know, you should have been at the bar, but you were at Chuck E. Cheese. And, you know, now that you're 30, you should be on the golf course, but you're at, at BJ's, you know, it's just... I'm going to be One in the nursing things. home by five years from now. There you go. <laughs> I was at a Macy's today, by the way. I was, I'm in Atlanta right now. And I went to the Cumberland Mall, did my part, pulled up. It was fairly crowded, like you said, Joe. Bought two collared shirts and some socks and a few other things to get me through the next week. I didn't expect to be here as long as I've been. And uh, trying to do my, my thing to support the cause. Well, I'm going back to the office next week. And I have to find my khaki pants and see if they still fit and then go look at some of these button downs and see if they're like still kind of dry cleaned or if they've been eaten by moths or what's going on. I think that middle button's going to be hanging on for dear life. <laughs> yeah. You might need to move the button just a bit, a little bit. So while we're on the topic of retail in an interesting development, Amazon is going to be opening brick and mortar stores. Hallelujah. This was interesting. This is our early must-know of the week. For people who've been listening for the last five or six weeks, we have a must-know every week, and, and sometimes it's about an office tenant looking for new space or uh, somebody planning to move headquarters to a new city, things like that. Try to inform our property owner, brokerage clients of things that if they didn't know when their boss asks them about it, could be some element of career risk. But this one is the Amazon story. 
and they are looking to open up brick and mortar stores in California and Ohio. So if you are a receiver or a mall manager, a mall owner, somebody in that business, and you own a mall or manage a mall in one of those two states, I think you better hop in your catamaran, get on that Amazon river and start paddling real fast. Try to find a your way to Mr. Bezos's office and see if he's got a brick and mortar store for you. I mean, can't is it just like too on the nose to talk about how oxymoronic or ironic this is? Amazon comes in and kills brick and mortar retail and then opens brick and mortar retail. You have seen this from other online first retailers, but it's always been on a much smaller scale. You got the Warby Parkers and other, you know. Uh, companies that start only online and then go uh, to brick and mortar. But this has been, you know, I would say in the uh, ether for a long time where we've, we and many others have said, these class B and C malls have, are in good locations near highways. They've got high C, you can't really change them to a warehouse per se, but, you know, you can store a lot of goods there. There are central locations and so on and so on. One of my questions about this, and I don't know if it was in the article or not, is kind of what their MO is going to be. Like, are they going to just want to be in like the high-end malls? Or I did see that they're going to be selling a lot of Amazon Basics stuff. So are they trying to be more like a Target type situation where they're going to, you know, go into some of the more class B type areas or look to build their own stuff? I don't know. But it just made me think that everything comes full circle. Like, Look at stretchy pants, high socks, short shorts, Chuck Taylors, those white Nike shoes that I see every, you know, 16-year-old wearing now, like everything comes back. Some of the shorts these kids are wearing, man, if I wore that in high school, I would have gotten my butt beat. <laughs> I don't know. Some things don't come back. Your uh, your vertical leap doesn't come back and and your hair doesn't proceed, it recedes, let me tell you. <laughs> I take your point, but it's not uh, its not a perfect analogy. Some of the things about Amazon we learned today is that their store sizes are going to be about 30,000 square feet. So they're not uh, Macy's or Sears in scale, but they are bigger than your typical 10,000 square foot inline store. So kind of a, a moderate size number, maybe the kind of thing that you would have seen uh, a Toys R Us or a sports authority back in the day, something of that size. Uh, to your point, Joe, we don't know what types of things that they're going to be targeting, but maybe maybe the answer is just so self-evident that it's it's eluding us by its simplicity. And that is, when they started their warehouses, they were putting things in places where they can get real estate for you know two dollars a square foot or a dollar a square foot, and maybe this is the cheapest thing they could find for the best location. And maybe it's it's not rocket science it's just the availability of what's out there might be worth it just to save on return shipping costs <laughs> right offer somebody you know five dollars back to just bring it into this return center and then oh they're probably going to buy something on the way out you know and so there are a number of other stories that we covered this week so we're going to run through those manis i have about 10 of them i won't go through them all uh, they all have been covered in our morning research that comes out through Trepwire. I know a lot of our listeners uh, get this regularly, some, some good and some bad in there. 
uh, I'll try to stick to one or two of each. On the not so good, uh, last month, we noted that Washington Prime had delineated five new malls as non-core. That's usually a precursor to a giving back the keys. Um, that story was broken by Commercial Real Estate Direct. Shortly before then, Washington Prime had filed for Chapter 11. Uh, one of those malls went delinquent for the first time this month. It would be the Dayton Mall uh, in Ohio. So for those that are responsible for the Dayton Mall, you might want to even jump on that Amazon River right now and try to find uh, your way to that Amazon office to see if they want to put a store in your mall. Uh, big loan, $77 million. It represents 7.9% of a CMBX six deal. We found other stories where collateral was lowered. The Asheville Mall is now $18 million underwater. It represents 70% of the collateral behind a 2011 deal. The Westfield Palm Desert Mall in California, it was lowered for the second time in five months. The collateral is now, uh, it looks like about 70 million underwater at this point. That being California, again, another reason for uh, the owners there to, to give a call to Mr. Bezos. The interesting thing about that one, the Westfield Palm Desert, DSCR on that loan was above 4.0x every year from 2015 to 2019. So that was uh, a little bit of a shock. Uh, the value of the collateral on the Pierre Bossier Mall in Bossier City, it could be Bossier, I'm not sure. Bossier City. Is it Bossier? Is it Bossier? Is no, it Bossier City? Well, I don't know. Someone will tell us. Someone will call us dumb when they email I'm gonna us. Say, I'm going to stick with Bossier City. Bossier, El like Cavassier. Well, it's Louisiana, so it always has that you know, a hint of French language down there. Uh, the value of that collateral drops by 85%. That's a CMBX 6 mall. Let's cut to something that was a little bit more positive. I, I like this one. The Audubon Crossing and Audubon Commons in New Jersey, that loan was delinquent a couple of months in 2020 and 2021. It backs a $40 million CMBS loan. DSCR was under 1.0x. Uh, the loan missed its balloon date. Uh, it was expected to miss its, its balloon date, um, but it got paid off this month, two months prior to its maturity. So a good story there that something that lousy debt service coverage ratio, previously distressed, gets paid off in full, and that's part of a 2012 CMBS deal. So a little bit of everything for you, uh, and if you want any of these stories, we're happy to share them with you. If you reach out to Haley behind the glass or to us on Twitter, or podcast at trip.com. Of course. Our email. Turning to office, many firms are reworking their return to office plans. And it's very similar to what we heard last summer. Remember, everybody was going back Labor Day. Now everybody's going back Labor Day, then October, now 2022. I was reading on either Market Watch or CNBC earlier today that we're now up to. 27% of the firms that are coming back are now mandating a, a, a vaccine if you're coming back, which will probably dampen the number of people that do come back in full. And there's a sizable number of people, firms, that have done exactly what you said, Martha. We said in the past, Capital One has pushed back. I think Verizon 
this week pushed back, I think, until 2022 at, at this point. And there seems to be five to 10 of these big names every single week that are tapping the brakes hard. And that is not great news for inner city locations, for restaurants, bars, multifamily housing owners, anybody in that category, I think you have to be biting your nails these days uh, every time one of these new announcements comes out. Then we've had, I mean, this is not common, but then we have the State Street story this week, right? Which basically said State Street's not going back at all to New York City, right? And they're in two buildings there. So, uh, and what was it last week? LinkedIn said everybody can work remote essentially forever. I mean, forever is a uh, up for debate, right? They could say forever now, and then a year from now, start you know encouraging people to come back in. But I think that it's it's a lot of mixed messages. I would say that I'm seeing kind of in the news stories, and even in our stories today, we've got some big you know, large blocks of office space getting signed for lease. But then we also have these stories of large companies pushing back their uh, return to office plans indefinitely. I would say the moment you start requiring the vaccine, it becomes tough to require the vaccine and require return to office at the same time. You know what I mean? So it's just, it's fraught with uh, potential litigation and people using it as an excuse not to come back and also legitimately uh, not wanting to come back. I, I heard a new twist on this. It has more to do with the dining and travel element of it, but it was a, 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 something brought up by an employee at TREP this week. And that was, you know, in New York, there's now these mandates that to go out to dinner, you have to have a vaccination for everybody to, to, to partake. You have to show your card and, and, and so forth. And this particular family has you know, two adults, uh, some kids above 12, but also some kids under 12. So they're ineligible to be vaccinated at this point. And they can't go out to dinner as a family, right? They can't go to your Outback or your Applebee's or, or anywhere else at the moment because they can't go together because one member is not vaccinated. And I hadn't really thought of that angle until this woman brought that up, that you know, the tighter you make this, the more you're going to squeeze the in-person dining experience, right? Maybe you make up for this by uh, delivery and so forth, and the spend is the same, and, and hopefully it is. But it does bring in wrinkles that I hadn't thought about before. And, you know, for me, anything that squeezes these small proprietors, uh, whether it's the nail salon or the, the restaurant, you know, the casual dining, the bar, whatever, uh, just breaks my heart. Let's go through some of the headlines that we have in the office space. Yeah, unlike retail, where we, I, I would say we had at least the, the retail story on the earnings was universally good, but the retail story on the CMBS market was probably 80% not good and 20% good in, in terms of the data we saw thus far in August. I would say in the office space, as long as you don't consider people pushing back their, their return to the office by three months a bad thing, which I don't. I think it's a, it's a tapping of the brakes. Uh, a lot more good than bad, right? Joe brought up the State Street story. They're going to vacate two midtown Manhattan offices, no New York City presence uh, at all. That was kind of the one negative story we saw 
And that one is interesting. I'll, I'll put in a parenthetical very quickly about that. One of the offices they're vacating is 1290 Avenue of the Americas, uh, co-owned by, I believe, S.L. Green and the Trump Organization, if I'm not mistaken. Um, State Street doesn't take up a whole lot of space in that building, I think about 50,000 square feet. But we've already mentioned in our research that Equitable Life is giving up on that building. Uh, they have about 400,000 square feet there. And Cushman and Wakefield, with about 150,000 square feet, is considering moving. So when you talk about all of that in totality at 1290, you're talking about a third of the space in that building. It looks like it's going to be vacated. The good news about the, the loan there is that it's really under-levered and, and really seasoned. So probably not a credit event waiting to happen, but um, it is something to watch in the future. I'll split these with Joe going through them. Uh, I'll go through one or two, and I'll leave the rest to him. Encompass Digital Media renewed 140,000 square feet at Japan Landing in Stamford, Connecticut. Stamford, Connecticut has not always been a very strong market. They've had exposure to UBS who left. There's been exposure to, I believe, opioid makers in that area um, that have gone out of business and so forth. They've seen a real contraction over the last 15 years. Nice to see that they've gotten a renewal um, at that property, 140,000 square feet. Uh, another lease we reported on this week, Cisco is moving to downtown Chicago. They're moving from Rosemont, Illinois. I forget how much space they're taking. I think it's 100,000 square feet. They're moving to the old post office. Why we like this story is that we've spoken often about people downsizing in Chicago and putting sublet space on the market. Uh, here's an example of a big lease in the Chicago market. That old post office um, backs a very big 2020 or 2021 CMBS loan. So good news there. Yeah, a couple more. I think this was in Real Estate Weekly. I think it was also in the Post with Quozo, but I'm not, I'm not sure. I might be getting my stories mixed up. But SL Green, another shout out to SL Green today, signs a 100,000 square foot lease with Mintz, Levin, Cohn, Ferris, Glofsky, and Popeo, a, a law firm that's been growing a lot in the last several years. That's going to be at 919 Third Avenue. Uh, they're currently in the Chrysler building near Grand Central. Mintz will be uh, moving to 919 Third Avenue where they're taking over, like I said, a 20-year lease, 100,000 square feet. Uh, the Chrysler East building, actually, which is uh, the spot that they're vacating, has a $265 million loan in CMBS debt and CMBS deals uh, from 2013, split into two 2013 deals. So, you know, positive I think overall for Manhattan to see these large block leases getting signed and large corporate tenants, you know, committing to the office for the long term. Uh, another one here is Hyundai. Hyundai is buying 90,000 square foot creative office in LA's El Segundo market. Uh, it's a good sign for uh, office development in the LA's South Bay area. This is according to Commercial Observer. They're expanding, Hyundai is expanding into the submarket of El Segundo. Uh, they're not leasing, they're actually acquiring it, 90,000 square feet of space there. And the last one here, the CBS building uh, on West 52nd Street was purchased by Harbor Group International or entered into an agreement for purchase for $760 million. And that's from Globe Street. Do you have any more color on that one, Manis? Any sort of details on cap rate or previous sales? I think it's a sale leaseback deal. The purchase price is $760 million. 
the building itself, 51 West 57th Street, sometimes known as the BlackRock building, but not the firm BlackRock. It's the nickname for CBS, where CBS has had space there for, I don't know, more than 50 years, almost 60 years. Viacom CBS, CBS will lease back its space on a short-term basis, and uh, the deal is expected to close by the end of 2021. It uh, looks like Darcy Stakem and Bill Shanahan of CBRE uh, were acting on behalf of Viacom in, in that particular deal. We do have a deal of the week in the office space, uh, which we'll throw out there now. Is this a fitting time, Martha? Only if Joe cues the music. It's always a good time for deal of the week. Exactly. People that know me well, uh, at least through the podcast, know that I like to focus on hard hit parts of the market or hard hit property types. Uh, Here, uh, we're going back to Texas. Entergy signed a 108 square foot lease expansion at Hughes Landing in the Woodlands, Texas. The news comes from Real Estate Business Online. We like this because it's part of that Houston corridor. The the Woodlands are about 30 miles north of Houston. And as I've been known to say periodically, any office lease in the Houston area is a good lease. Uh, Same with Chicago. Entergy is expanding by about 50,000 square feet. It'll provide additional square footage for about 650 employees for the firm. Colliers represented the landlord, which is the Howard Hughes Corp. The individuals there are Bob Parsley, Norm Munoz, uh, Julian Fredericks, and Connor Duffy uh, helped out on that deal with Colliers. And Hugh Herman, Carla Williams, and Andy Gertner of Cushman and Wakefield represented the tenant. Good one on all of you for getting that one over the finish line and good for the Houston office market. Turning to hotels, late last week, Airbnb reported earnings. I think they technically reported earnings around uh, after 4 p.m. last Thursday when we were already recording the podcast. So we did want to go back and look at what the results showed. It gives some indication about sentiment for the upcoming quarter as well as what happened in the last quarter. Yeah, so I just want to say that I had notes ready about Airbnb's earnings while we were recording the podcast last week. We just never got to it. So I want to get a little bit of credit there. Um, I will say they had a, an article in Barron's about Airbnb a couple weeks ago, which was I thought I found pretty good. I mean, it's got one of these kind of like techie type CEO guys, but the idea of imagine being a company that uh, offers a service that lets strangers stay at your house and then COVID hits, like you would have thought that this company is dead. And in, in some ways it was for a short period, but they actually ended up pivoting, focusing and getting rid of some of their like uh, extraneous kind of projects and working really hard on just their main area of business. And then they realized that actually a lot of people are doing long-term rentals uh, because they're stuck at home and they're going somewhere to go work from work from the beach or whatever else it might be. But anyway, uh, getting back to this quarter, uh, the numbers I think were relatively actually very positive. So in terms of number of nights booked in Q2 2021, they're up 200% from Q2 2020, 
not overly surprising given Q2 2020 was the heart of COVID, but if you look at Q2 uh, 19, it was 83.9 million nights. Q2 2021, 83.1. So they're pretty much back in terms of number of nights booked, but then the gross booking value, I'd say about 100 million, 120 million higher than it was in Q2 2019. It's actually 300% greater than it was in Q2 2020. So there's a bunch of other numbers here, but the moral of the story is that they're kind of back to pre-COVID kind of quantities or transaction amounts, transaction numbers, I should say, and they're getting kind of higher value per booking uh, at this point. So, you know, good, I guess, good to see. I don't know what this means for I don't know if this is a positive for hotels directly, but I do think it's a positive to say people are back to traveling. So, you know, I don't know if people who use Airbnb are also people who use hotels, but I would assume that in general, if more people and people are back to traveling, that's good for hotels in the long run. As I was listening to it, it didn't sound like a positive, even though you deliver that with verve and enthusiasm and kind of an optimistic tenor. My whole thought was like, we should be playing taps for the hotels. But to your point is right. You mean right? because Airbnb is doing well? Or be, right, and right. Not the exactly, hotels, right. 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 It, it, it's a negative for the hotels. But you know, my, my, my instinct as I was listening to it, and I'm not uh, fully up to speed on the Airbnb thing. You know, the, my first reaction was great for the airlines, great for the restaurants, great for destinations you know like uh maybe orlando where people are going to spend money at theme parks uh not so good for the hotels uh that's my instinct but you did take a contrarian view there at the end where you said any spend is good spend and if people are willing to spend on airbnb there's probably a good portion of people also willing to spend on hotels so i'll give you the benefit of the doubt for your peppy review of airbnb just there maybe there's there's more good news beneath the the initial veneer than I, than I'm seeing. Did you see that there's and there are now two competing apps, Airbnbs for pools. One is called Swimmy, and one is called Swimply. I think Swimmy wins just because Swimply is too hard to say. But can you imagine? I mean, I guess this is probably what people said when Airbnb first came out. But can you imagine letting a bunch of hairy chested unwashed strangers jump into your pool for like $22 an hour. Oh, this is residential. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, what's next? Hot tubs. Bathrooms. Hot tubs. I don't know. <laughs> That'd be weird. That's uh, yeah. I'm, a, I'm just a hotel guy. I mentioned earlier in the podcast, I'm in Atlanta and I've never done an Airbnb. You know, I'm, uh, I'm staying in the Vinings area. I'll say when I was like 15 years old, we didn't need an app to jump into a stranger's pool. You just did. You know? That's we called just did. pool hopping. Yeah. Right. Yes. <laughs> a couple more stories to round out the lodging sector. Yeah, I had one green shoot, which I'll talk about. Uh, there's a Marriott Hotel coming to downtown San Jose. This comes again from Globe Street, our second call out to them on this podcast. Urban Catalyst will build an extended stay Marriott Hotel uh, in the downtown area, just as any office lease in Chicago or Houston is a good one, um, any mall lease is a good one, in my estimation. Anybody looking to open up a new hotel 
is, is also a good one that shows a level of confidence that the economy is coming back. In this particular one, it's going to be an eight-story property with 175 rooms. They estimate that the average guest will stay for about two weeks. So uh, good on Urban Catalyst for jumping into the um, pool. I want to give one shout out, and I, don't, I can't go through all the details because it's a very deep story, but on CRE Direct, CRENews.com, there's a long in-depth story about the Hilton Times Square. It's, a, it's the last loan in an old 2011 deal uh, that got deed in lieu. There's ground leases, there's reserves that have been kind of captured by the trustee and all this other stuff, but uh, definitely worth a read uh, if you want to get you know some inside baseball on CMBS trusts and the Times Square hotel market. And a few more shout outs. A listener at Eastern Bank's a big fan, wants a t-shirt. So Haley, we need to make sure we send that. Lucius, who's been a repeat emailer and trivia player, is now going to be renamed Sweet Lou. I had vied for Sweet and Sour because he's got a little bit of a sarcastic edge to him, but Sweet Lou wins. Edgar T on Twitter suggested the podcast is a must listen for CMBS and real estate financing across asset classes. So thank you for that. Bob N, if you remember Susie S, she was our looking for 15 minutes. We gave her 15 seconds of fame. And I think we're now up to about 25 seconds. Her client is an avid podcast listener and recommends to others at his firm. So thank you for that. You already talked about Rick Jones. So he filled out our CRE sentiment survey. And if you haven't yet, I encourage you to fill it out. It's easy to find on our website. And if you need help, send us an email. And we'll send you the link directly. BB Dogged, Manus may be too bullish on return to office after Labor Day, but that's why we call him Manus Green Shoots Clancy because he looks for the upside in things. And we got a lot of comments from people that did fill out the survey. I thought uh, they were all very kind. I thought it, the one that said MC is the man, Joe too. Now I just want to point out, I am also an MC. My name is the same initials as Manus. I'm happy to be the man, but I don't think they meant me, Manus. I think they meant you. Well, while we're on the topic, I think you alluded to it with Lucius and the trivia questions. We did have a few people point out to us that last week we didn't have the trivia question. I'm not sure I'm going to have one every week because it, we do get far afield. And sometimes people write in disparaging remarks when we go too far sideways. But I'll throw a trivia question out there just for Sweet Lou. And this one was given to me, and I love this one. There are three classic pop slash rock songs that have the lyric, the, the summer's here and the time is right for oh, fill in the blank. I if you love know, this. if you know all three and you could do it with the honor system, the, t- the summer's here and the time is right for three separate songs. Many of them have been covered by many different artists. Yes. If you could do this on the honor system and give us all three without looking it up on Google, you get a t-shirt. Extra credit for giving us the bands. There you go. With that, we'll close. Thank you to our producer, Haley Keene, who's got her work cut out for her. 
Join us next week as we review what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting. If you have a question or a comment of any kind, send an email to podcast at trip.com. For more info, visit trip.com and subscribe to the podcast with your favorite provider. Thank you for listening and stay well. All right.